0: From Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to emmanuelbirmingham.com. Our passage this morning is Psalm 16, 1 through 11. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord. who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, and let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church. It's good to see uh, many of you back. who were traveling last week over the new year. It's good to have you back. Thank you, Cody, and everyone that leads us in worship. It's just Man, I feel like I could run a mile, and then my body will tell me no, Um, but I'm so amped up right now. Um, I shared with you all uh, last week a little bit, if you missed last week, uh, about my father. I wanted to give you an update. My dad, very, very sick, Uh, significant health issues recently over the last week, and he's been in the hospital. Many of you have asked how he's doing. I wanted to give you an update. Um, Looked like last week, for the most part, he was on the mend slowly, but in the last 24 hours, he's taken a pretty significant step back, and so... Let's continue to pray for him. Um, he's not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I've been reminded uh, beyond anything I can express in words of just God's care and his kindness towards me and my family. And much of that has been through you reaching out and, and asking about him and praying for him and praying for us and bringing us food. And I mean, it's just uh, it's amazing. It's amazing, and I'm so grateful for you, so thank you, thank you so much, and I'll keep you updated on him, and Eddie, Eddie is his name, so keep praying for him. So this morning, we are um, entering into a four-week kind of sermon series, where we're just going to look at ourselves in the mirror for a little bit. Um, You know, when Ardent Church and Renovate Church seven years ago became one church that is now Emmanuel Church, Those of you who were here during that time, you put together a vision statement. And embedded in that vision statement, not only is it something to identify us by, but embedded in it were areas of value that Emmanuel Church would be about for as long as God and his grace kept this entity alive and well. And this vision statement and its areas of value would guide how we engaged our community, what we would be about, how we would spend our money, how we'd live out the gospel corporately, but also individually in our families and in our neighborhoods. It's kind of like guardrails that would set a path forward for us that would help us make decisions on what's important and what's not important to our fellowship, to our body. And our vision statement reads like this. It'll be on the screen for you. Emanuel Church is a diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. A diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. Now, since this statement's formation, I went back and looked on the website. Um, there have been five sermon series, if you want to, that's the plural, not counting this one, around this vision statement or some component or components of this vision statement since seven years ago. So now we're making six times in the last seven years that we have preached through this vision statement. And the temptation may be to think to yourself, heard this, been there before, tackled this, I get it. Another sermon series on the vision statement. I know that probably would be the temptation for me if this wasn't my first time going through it with you. But the sentiment may be to check out a little bit over the next four weeks to not engage like you normally would on a Sunday morning during this sermon series. Because in your heart and in your mind, you feel like this series is just on repeat once a year for as long as Emmanuel Church exists. But let me just give you two encouragements, two encouragements real quick from the outset of our time. Uh, One, engage with me over the next four weeks. Stay engaged. Engage with one another in your GCs over the next four weeks. The purpose of another sermon series on our vision as a church is self-examination. It's looking at ourselves in the mirror, self-reflection. If you were to reflect on the last year of Emmanuel Church, even the last years, have we truly embodied our vision statement? You know, are we currently a diverse family of disciples? How are we currently making the real Jesus known? Are we currently engaged in Birmingham and beyond? So engage with me as we collectively look at our vision statement as a church. But secondly, there's great biblical precedent in revisiting often. And when I say often, I mean regularly. Revisiting our identity, not only as believers in Christ Jesus, but our identity as a church, as a corporate body. Not only the big C church, but the little C church, Emmanuel Church. I mean, how often in the Old and New Testaments are the commands consumed with, you know, remember the Lord. Don't forget. When you enter into the land, don't forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I mean, to remember his purpose for his people and his world. The fact that the exhortation exists so often implies that we forget so often, right? Right? Most of Paul's letters in the New Testament are filled with the first half of the gospel reminders of who we are before getting to what we do. You know, we've said before, the indicative, the the facts, precede the imperative, the commands, right? So who we are always precedes what we do. And so we need to revisit who we are. So over these next four weeks, it's going to be crucial, crucial reminders for all of us of who God has called us to be as a body, as a manual church. And this will help set their trajectory, not only for this year, of who we want to be and what we want to be about, but in the years to come, who we want to be and what we want to be about as a church. So I'm excited to go through this with you. I've entitled this sermon series, Emmanuel Church, An Affectionate People. An Affectionate People. Jonathan Edwards in his book, Religious Affections, he defines affections as the strongest motivations of the human self, ultimately determining everything the person is and does. You know, affections manifest themselves in what we think about, in our actions, in our feelings. Affections produce lasting change. So I'm putting affections in the sermon series title for this series, I was thinking two things when I did that. First... I was thinking that desires and affections compel us to sacrifice and to make, take great risks to find pleasure and joy in that which we're affectionate about, right? Those in love will go to great lengths to demonstrate love for the other. You know, fans of sports teams will act a fool and spend lots of money on tickets and concessions and experiences to cheer on their team. Many examples abound in this area, but when we truly have affections for someone or for something, it will drive us to do foolish things, to feel the joy of exercising those affections towards that object or that person. And then the second reason I call this Emmanuel Church and Affectionate People is because embedded in our vision statement, underneath the words of identity on a page should be desire. Right? I mean, beginning the vision statement with Emmanuel Church is will never be fully realized until we have embedded in that Emmanuel Church desires. We will never be what we don't desire. To quote James K.A. Smith, as he puts it, you are what you love. You are what you love. If we truly don't long for and desire for and have affections for being a diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond, we will never be that. Ever. It's just words on a screen that we're going to talk about once a year and maybe never see come to fruition. So, not only do we need to look at the mirror and gauge our external actions, are we doing the right things and keeping in line with who we are? But we also need to look at our hearts. Do we truly, in our heart of hearts, desire to be this kind of people? And our starting place for all affections as the people of God is having desires for Christ. Desires for Christ. Now, the next three weeks are going to be given to unpacking the specific mission statement. But this week, we're going to start 30,000-foot view, the foundation of our mission statement. And that's getting to the desires that should compel us to fulfill these desires, and that's the desire for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Now, Psalm 16 is a psalm about affections. It's a psalm with joy and confidence in God. The psalm really teaches us one primary thing that we're going to spend our time unpacking, and that's this, confidence in God's goodness towards us provokes us to glory in Him. The confidence of God's goodness towards us provokes us, it stirs us to glory in Him. Reflecting and meditating on God's person and God's acts dumps gasoline on the fire of affections. And those affections, as we defined earlier, as the motivations of the human self, those affections, as they rise in our hearts, they lead to lasting change in thought, in action, and in feeling. So let's turn our eyes to these words from King David in Psalm 16, and let's just reflect upon God's goodness this morning. Verses 1 through 4, read these with me again. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So from the outset here, we see that God's protection is the desire of David's prayer. And it's his request. Verse 1, it's right there. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Protection. You now David's entrusting himself to the protection of his God. And we can assume this psalm was probably written during one of many of David's precarious situations he found himself in, fleeing Saul or finding, you know, making war against another king or nation, whatever it may be. We'll see many of those situations arise as we study First and Second Samuel this year But he's seeking to find refuge in the Lord in the midst of a dangerous situation. And from these verses, we see he's receiving that protection from God that he is seeking. He's receiving it in two ways. One, first, he's receiving it through his intimacy with God. So God protects us through our intimacy with him. He protects our souls, right? I mean, the name he invokes here, when you see in your Bibles the word Lord in all caps or God in all capital letters, when you see those words, that is the English translator's way of letting us know that this is the covenant name of God. That in the Hebrew, it's the word Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. It's the name that those God had redeemed knew him by. This covenant name, but it's also the way those he had redeemed knew his character by. When they heard the name Yahweh or Jehovah, we communicate God's mercy and his holiness and his grace and his faithfulness, his compassion, kindness, patience. On and on we could go. Because his character and his name were one and the same. So when David is seeking protection from danger, he flees to the God in whom he knows he'll find covenant love and faithfulness. It's the God who's committed himself, the God who has committed himself to David's care and protection. David says as much, as, as much in verse 2, right? I say to the Lord, there it is, covenant name of God, Lord. I say to the Lord, to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. you know, David is declaring in this verse all good things that he has in his life, all these things he experiences that are for him are from God's gracious and good hand towards him. I mean, how often, how often do you think on that? How often do I think on that? That all the good things I experience in my life come from the God who has committed and covenanted himself to me, to us. That in situations like David finds himself in where danger is imminent and possibly surrounding him on every side. That in those situations, David and us by way of Christ Jesus, we find our protection in our relationship and intimacy with him. David's membership in the covenant family of God provided the confidence he needed to pray for protection and trust that God would provide it, that he would give it. He has confidence in God's committed goodness towards him. And he knows this because he sits in close relationship and intimacy with his God. But then second, God protects us through intimacy not only with him, but intimacy with his people, his people, his people. We'll talk more about this next week as we unpack the first part of our vision statement. But suffice to say this week that David derives delight in verses 3 and 4, verse 3 in particular, derives delight not only in the covenant he has with God, but in his covenant relationship he has with God's people. You now, oftentimes it's through God's people that God mediates his presence, Right? I cannot say how often in times of my life, crisis or suffering, or even this last week walking through the stuff with my father, how often I felt the nearness and kindness and care, provision of God through you, through the people of God. It's in those times that I'm reminded that, that God has provided a people for one another, for us, to provide protection and provision and goodness to one another by means of his spirit working through us. More on that next week. We'll come back to it. So, first, God's protection is the desire of David's prayer. Second, God's provision is the reason for David's praise. His provision is the reason for David's praise. Look at verses five through eight. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup, you hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. You know, I love this language here. This use of metaphors here. That David's using these really two governing metaphors in these verses. There's a chosen portion and a cup. Chosen portion and a cup. These two metaphors communicate a shared truth. And that shared truth is that God has lavishly given us himself. He's given us himself. Let's think about these for just a second. The metaphor of a, a chosen portion should take our minds back to the Old Testament when Israel entered into the promised land and the land was being divided up among the tribes, right? Joshua, book of Joshua. Every tribe received an allotment of land except for one. You may remember which one that is? Levi, yeah, Levi, the Levites, right? The Levites, the ones who were set apart for the priestly work of the Lord. And the rationale behind them not receiving an allotment of land as their inheritance was because the Lord was their inheritance. He revealed himself to the Levites in ways that he did not to the rest of the tribes of Israel because they were so closely linked to the work of God. Because they were work as priests, they experienced him in ways these other tribes did not. and He was intended to be enough for them, their chosen portion. And now, because of Christ, we just studied this in 1 Peter, we are now a kingdom of priests, right? We are a kingdom of Levites, in a sense. Really, new priests after the order of Melchizedek. That's another story. But we're priests, right? We're a kingdom of priests. Our chosen portion is the Lord. He is our inheritance. To use the language here in Psalm 16, he's the source of our security. He is the source of our destiny. He's the source of our provision. There's nothing anyone else can offer to fill that that He has given us. You know, Augustine said it this way: He said, Let others choose for themselves portions, earthly and temporal, to enjoy. The portion of the saints is the Lord eternal, He's our portion. He is the one we enjoy and find satisfaction and hope in. Then think about the metaphor of a cup. You know, this image of a cup in the scriptures is symbolized, it symbolizes one's destiny. Everyone in life received a cup. So everyone, metaphorically speaking, receives some kind of cup when you're born from the Lord. This is your portion, so to speak. And the cup for the wicked in the scriptures refers to God's judgment. You drink the cup of God's wrath. Right? This is picture in the prophets, especially. But for the righteous, it's a cup of God's blessing. Now think about Psalm 23:5. My cup overflows, right? It's this blessing from the Lord, insatiable blessing from God. And David is saying here: My cup, my destiny is the cup of the Lord. He has given me abundantly himself overflowed my cup with his presence and with his blessings. He is my delight. He is my inheritance. He is my portion and determines my lot. David reflects. He meditates on these truths. He recalls them to his mind, and it produces in him praise. Worship. So God not only lavishly gives us of himself, but he also graciously gives us his word. His word. Verses 7 and 8. David blesses the Lord for giving him counsel and in the night giving him instruction. That he sets the Lord continually before him, verse 8, turning the eyes of his heart towards his God. And David's source of counsel and guidance and direction was the law of the Lord. For us, it's the scriptures, right? We pour over the Bible. That's what we do every Sunday. I hope that's what you're doing every day of the week Pouring over the scriptures, the unchanging, true, life-giving word of the Lord for direction and guidance and wisdom in this life. And David's reference here to being instructed in the night probably refers to his meditation upon God in the stillness of the night. It's this picture of Psalm 1, right? Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the seat of scoffers, stands in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night, day and night. And David says he consistently sets the Lord before him, recalling the Lord in his thoughts and meditations and knows that whatever comes, he will not be shaken, for the Lord is with him. The life of a Christian, of an affection-filled Christian, is a life of contemplation. It's a life of remembering. It's a life of recalling. It's a life of gratitude and thanksgiving. I'm convinced that so much of Satan's work in this world is simply keeping us busy and distracted, keeping our minds filled with other preoccupations and needs and tasks and duties and fears and anxieties and stresses, where there's no time or energy left for the Lord. And what does your day typically look like? All of us are busy. Every single person in this room is busy. Let me tell you what my day, Christine and my, our days look like. Wake up, make breakfasts and lunches for the kids. Kids wake up, busy getting them ready to send to school, get them to school, go to work, come home from work, hang out with the kids, make dinner for the kids, get them ready for bed, squeeze in a conversation with Christine at the end of the day, Wake up, go to bed, wake up again, and do it all over again. That's typically what a typical day in the Baker household looks like. That's right. That's right. And you know what? The enemy loves it that way. He loves it that way. He loves keeping us so busy, even busy with good things, to keep our minds distracted and off the thing that matters the most, and that's our time with the Lord. Now listen, all those things I just mentioned are good things. I love my kids. I love providing for my family. I love my wife and having conversations with her. That is not a waste of time at all. But none of those things will save me. None of those things can atone for my sin. Christ does that. The day I just described to you that Christine and I typically live is a day that could be lived by a Christian or non-Christian. There's nothing distinctly Christian about that. You know, oftentimes our days are so full that time with the Lord is what gets pushed out. You know, it takes, it takes intentionality and sacrifice and time, even creativity sometimes. Desire to create that time with the Lord. And it's hard, and we're going to fail, but it's important enough. May God create in us the desires to do that. We'll talk more about that in week three of our sermon series. So more on that to come. So God's protection, so we keep going here, is the desire of David's prayer. God's provision is the reason for David's praise. And then third, God's presence is the cause of David's eternal pleasure. God's presence is the cause of David's eternal pleasure. Look at verses 9 through 11. David writes, Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to sheol nor let your holy one see corruption you make known to me the path of life in your presence there's fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore three areas in which god's presence stirs up our affections three areas first god's presence provides gladness in life gladness in life it's not a word we use enough of gladness The grounds for David's pleasure, for his affection, for his joy and rejoicing in this life is the presence of his God. And his entire being, his entire person, every fiber of who he is is caught up in worship. The inward realities he experiences in his soul manifest themselves in his body. We're not split people. We're not body and soul. We are whole people. Bodies and souls, God made us all, entire beings to worship Him. Affections from the heart turn into glory from the mouth. You know, we praise that which we desire. I've said that already. It's what Jesus said in Luke six forty five. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Right. So that which we are affectionate for will come out of our mouths. If we're consumed with Christ, our mouths cannot help but glory in his name. Spend way more time on that. We've got to keep rolling. Second, God's presence provides confidence in death. Confidence in death. This language here of my flesh dwells secure in verse 9, of not letting David's soul descend to Sheol or see corruption in verse 10. David's communicating his confidence that God will save him from the grave. That God will deliver him, not just his soul, but his body from the devastation of death. And this is a great example of the nature of biblical prophecy we talked about back in 1 Peter. We studied 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm gonna read you 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. So if you got it, you wanna flip there, that's great. Or you can just listen very closely. First Peter one, 10 through 12. Peter writes, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And here it is. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. in the things that have now been announced to you. Through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Remember, we discussed very briefly how the prophets oftentimes did not fully understand to its fullest extent the messages they were receiving. They simply communicated that which God directed them to communicate. And Peter also, if you go to Acts 2, he alludes to these verses 8 through 11 from Psalm 16 in his first sermon at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. And he poses the question to those listening of who David's talking about when he talks about soul not descending to Sheol, body not seeing corruption, all those things. And he draws attention, Peter draws attention to the fact that David physically died. Even that his grave was with them that day in Acts chapter 2. But Peter attributes these words of David here, right here, to not primarily be about David but to be about Christ. That even if he didn't fully understand what he was talking about when he wrote, Acts 2.31, Peter says, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And David knew, and we know now, looking back, even if he didn't know to its fullest extent, that the God in covenant with him, the God that was that called him out to be a part of his people, the God who had been with him through every trial and tribulation he'd ever experienced in his life, the God who brought him from the pastures of Bethlehem to a palace in Jerusalem, the God in whom he found mercy after committing great sin, that God who'd been faithful and present with him in all his life would not abandon him in his moment of greatest need. Death itself. But God would deliver him from death. Even though David physically died, he awaited a day when someone would come and be bodily resurrected. Someone who would come who would not experience the pains of Sheol and the corruption of the grave. That's Jesus Christ Himself, the first fruits of the resurrection. We look back as David looked forward. David's soul had been delivered, and one day because of the resurrection, his body would also rise from the ground. And lastly here, lastly, God's presence provides bliss in eternity. Bliss in eternity, joy in heaven, the place where God is, where we will dwell with him forever. Joy is not derived, listen, joy is not derived in heaven, ultimately from its amenities. Joy is not ultimately derived from the fact that corruption will be no more. Joy is not ultimately derived from the fact that suffering and pain will be no more. Joy is not ultimately derived from seeing our loved ones who have loved Jesus and passed away, died already. It's not ultimately derived from seeing them again. Joy isn't even ultimately derived from the fact that death will be swallowed up with life. No, joy is derived from the mere fact that our God will be there that God will be there, that he will dwell with his people forever. Our pleasures forevermore come from the intimate presence of God that will be with us for all of eternity. Confidence in God's goodness towards us provokes us to glory in him. So what is our response, Emmanuel Church? How do we respond to that? As an affectionate people, how do we go about delighting in Christ? Before we can delight in a vision statement, we must delight in Christ. How do we go about doing that? You know, dispositions of the heart in the scriptures are, in a sense, both active and passive endeavors. Now, the Bible's full of verses that clearly speak of the Holy Spirit producing affections and desires in us, right? Right? I mean, joy is a fruit of the spirit, right? We can't manufacture that in ourselves. The spirit is the one who ultimately opens up our eyes. to see the beauty and the glory of Christ and the gospel. He's the one that saves us. We don't save ourselves. And that produces in us holy affections. But at the same time, at the same time, delighting is a command, right? Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's a command. Delight yourself. So it appears that delighting is active and passive. That the source of delighting, that joy, comes to us in a passive way, but it's our command to delight in it. So as we enter into 2023, this new season here at our church, as we begin this sermon series on affections and delight, I want to encourage us to approach it like a farmer, like a farmer. I want us to begin tilling the ground of our hearts. To begin working the ground as a farmer would work the ground. To put our hands to the plow of our beings and allow the spirit who has planted that seed of the gospel in us already. That is bringing forth life. As we begin to water it, as we begin to care for the ground. Let's let the spirit begin to bring fruit up. So as we close, four ways I want to challenge us this year to to take the soil of our hearts and begin to work the ground. Four ways. One, I want us to pray. Pray. Whether you're in a desert season or a fruitful season, we need to implore the Lord to do a work in us, to stir up through his spirit holy affections for him, that manifest themselves in external love and kindness to one another and to our community throughout Birmingham. Two, meditate, meditate, pause, just pause, contemplate, remember, stop what you're doing for brief periods of time throughout the day just to remember the goodness of the Lord. Love for us to begin to discipline ourselves in memorizing the scriptures, storing scriptures away in our minds and our hearts so in those times of pause and contemplation, we can recall that which God has put in us through his word. But make it a point this year to stop, just stop in a day. Carve out 30 minutes, an hour, whatever you got, carve it out and stop and contemplate the goodness of God in his word. Third. Attend. Attend. Don't neglect the gathering of the body. Eugene Peterson says this concerning corporate worship. He says, we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that's expressed as an act of worship. So basically what he's saying is this. Even if you don't feel like coming, come. For God's a God of means, and he may use your worship to produce in you affections for him. So make it a point in 2023 to be with the body in corporate worship. To be consistent with the body. Engaged with the body. Prepared to engage with the body. Even before coming through those doors, pray with your family on the way to church. Ask the Lord to prepare all of you to hear from the Lord as you come. And when you walk through that threshold right there, that door, be ready to hear from the Lord. Be ready to respond to what you're hearing. And then lastly, by the way, I look forward to seeing you. And then lastly, press in, just press in. What I mean by that is don't just reside on the fringes. Look for ways to further involvement with this church this coming year. As we're going to discuss over the next three weeks, God gives us means by which the Spirit of God produces in us holy affections and desires. And more often than not, those means involve other people. Other people. Press into relationships in the body this year. Don't hide in the darkness. Don't isolate yourself from your spiritual need, physical need, emotional need, whatever the case may be. Press into relationships and begin to cultivate those and see what kind of gospel fruit the Lord brings forth this coming year. I am so thankful for you. And I'm so grateful that God called me here in so many ways. It'll be a year in February since I've been your pastor, which is kind of hard to believe, but a year. And I'm praying big, big prayers for God's glory to be manifested here in the coming year, and years, if God allows that us to be here in years to come, years to come to advance his kingdom and to make his name look beautiful. So let's pray that together now and let's pray that together through 2023. Father, you are so good to us. If we were to sit and recall and contemplate on the ways you've been good to us just in the last week, we would be here all day. You are kind and merciful beyond what we deserve. We thank you for Christ. For Christ, through whom we have an intimate covenant relationship with you. That you draw us near to your heart because of Christ. So Lord, I pray, I pray that as we go about the rest of our day, this week, this month, this year, the rest of our lives, that we will not chase after fleeting pleasures. That we will not chase after affection-filled desires that are not of you. But I pray, O oh God, that we ultimately find our pleasure at your right hand. That We find our desires and affections being shaped and cultivated by the Holy Spirit. I pray that we're active in seeking those things. That we don't just wait, sit, and twiddle our thumbs and just wait, wait, wait. But may we pursue delight. Delight in Christ. And as we're pursuing, may our hearts be steadfast and waiting for you to respond. Father, may our prayers be big enough, Christ-centered enough. May you use them to change us and to make your name great and beautiful in Birmingham and beyond. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.